Broadcasting live via Think Tech Hawaii Studios in downtown Honolulu. Welcome to Top of the Line. I'm your host, Ben Lau. Aloha, and thank you for tuning in. I begin our episode with a lesser known quote by a better known person. Someone you'll all recognize. Someone who's affected us all. Quote, the most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. The storyteller sets the vision, values, and agenda of an entire generation that is to come." End quote. Many might not recognize the author of these words, though you're going to recognize the author, Steve Jobs. Like Jobs, I have the utmost respect and gratitude for our best storytellers. They make a difference in our world, in our lives. Since the beginning of time, and as far as we know, the rest of time. Many of you might not recognize my guest today. He is, as Job says, one of those people. And time, time is one of the ways he is known and I trust will be remembered. He's my friend, Sir Bruce Crumley. Born in Seattle, Washington and raised in the Bay Area, inculcated with Midwestern American values by parents from the heartland of America, Iowa. Bruce has been in France since 1987, following his graduation from USC, where he majored in Slavic languages and literature and minored in Soviet studies. Bruce has penned a novel entitled Makai Stinkai. He currently writes for the 9to5Mac.com group, principally for DroneDJ.com. And he has worked for a number of leading publications, including, this is quite a list, The New York Times, The Guardian, Fortune, Sports Illustrated, AFP, which I'll have to have Bruce pronounce for us, Al Jazeera, and Time Magazine, where he was the last bureau chief in Europe, stationed in Paris, France. Covering a range of subjects, world leaders, and public figures, Bruce is recognized as an expert on the subject of terrorism and European politics. He's written extensively on a wide range of matters, covering all the important and major subjects and many of the important people and personalities. What you're seeing on screen is just but a fraction, a tiny fraction of the written work that Sir Bruce has created over his career. When I say a small fraction, I can tell you that I got up to about page eight and there were at least another 50 pages to go just on this one particular uh, site, uh, storing some of his works. And that's just one of many of the publications that Bruce has written for. He's done a lot. Recognized for his contributions to his adopted country, Bruce has been recognized by the highest in the land. Bruce has been knighted and awarded with membership to the exclusive National Order of Merit by the President of the French Republic. You'll see the medal here. You'll see the order and admission to membership up on the right side of the screen. Awarded the title Chevalier, Bruce has been awarded one of the highest honors of France. Alongside its elder sibling, the Legion of Honor, there is no higher honor. This stands Bruce in a rarefied company. 
The president of the French Republic is the Grand Master of the Order, and each Prime Minister of France is made a member after six months of service. Bruce, standing by now, joins us from France. Hello, Bruce. Aloha, Ben. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for agreeing to come on, Bruce. It's a, real, it's a real honor. It's great to see you here. Bruce, I want to dive right into serious matters with you, right off the starting block. You, you get the references. We're just days past the sixth anniversary of the devastating events of November 2015, what are known as the Paris attacks. Let me try and set the backdrop. It's November 13th, 2015. There's a series of terrorist attacks underway across Paris. And if I've got your career timeline correct, Time Magazine has at this point already closed down much of its international operations. And you've moved on, having shut down and essentially turned off the lights for time. You had been serving at this point as editor at AFP, but that's past tense, AFP being the world's oldest news agency. You've recently left that job too and are like other mere civilians watching the events unfold across your hometown city of Paris. These events are your expertise, terrorism, and you are without your counterterrorism tools, your pen, mightier than the sword as the saying goes, and your platform, a world news agency. Tell me, tell us, what's going on? How can time and other agencies not have you on Overwatch? watching from the watchtower well it's like it's kind of a question of, of of practicality and pragmatism um you know uh media legacy media had been you know getting shellacked by the consequences of um digital media uh online media uh can't make enough as much advertising money as they used to in a, when everywhere in papers and magazines and um the readers consume uh, news a lot differently. And so, you know, no, no international news organization laid people off closed bureaus because they were happy about it. It was a, it was a, it was something they just had to do. Um, they had to adapt to in their coverage. And so as a consequence of that, uh, as you, as you said, I'm, I'm kind of a decommissioned, uh, uh, officer in, in, in the world of terrorism reporting. And, and, um, when I heard the news start coming in on, on that night, um, my, my first kind of reflex was, you know, you have professional muscle memory. You, you, you know, immediately think, oh, but God, I gotta get going. I gotta start, gotta think about who I can call and who might be able to tell me what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. And a few things went through my mind very quickly. A, um, well, I can freelance this stuff, but, um, you know, uh, before I put my calls in, I better make sure I have somebody to sell it to. And second of all, I, the more I thought about it, the more I saw the enormity of the attacks, you know, which wound up killing 130 people, left hundreds more injured, uh, including critically. Um, a lot of those people will be be marked for life. Uh, well, probably all of them will be like marked for life. Um, yeah, let's go back I, to the graphic, Bruce. I, I mean, I want to focus in on this. Uh, the events of 9-11, as terrible as they were, this is its own horror in its own way and can you lay out for audiences what's going on i mean it's it's a series of attacks that happens across the city you don't have the massive infrastructure destroyed that we did on 9 11 and you don't have the resulting invasion of a foreign country and long decades long wars but what is going on with these terrorist attacks in your home city i mean 
what they did. They did, didn't kill 130 people. They went on a, a killing spree. Yeah, in a way, this is a different paradigm, terrorist paradigm than 9-11 or the 2004 attacks in Madrid. I think it was 2005 attract, uh, attacks in London where you had bombings in places where there are a lot of people that could, you know, do a lot of, invoke a lot of carbonage in just a single go. In this case, you had basically what were small teams of commandos um, who were armed to the teeth with, with, with rifles and with explosives. They took over the, the Bataclan uh, concert hall when, while a, a rock concert was being staged and others just kind of leisurely walked down the, the, um, uh, the, the boulevard about, you know, with, lined with cafes. It was quite a nice night out and uh, it's, you know, kind of re-gentrified part of town. It was only about a mile away from my house and um, just started picking people off. It was like something out of a, out of a, of a television, dystopian television series. You know, one of these commandos turning up and just, uh, uh, you know, taking people out. I actually, the first um, inkling I had that something was wrong, I was watching the French national team play a, uh, a, a football match uh, at the Stade de France, uh, which is just north of Paris. And sometime just after halftime, I think it was, um, this big explosion went off. The players all stopped. Everybody kind of looked and, and they, they went on it. And interestingly, people, people kind of mistook it. The announcers mistook it for a, a, a bomb uh, what they call an agricultural bomb, which is loud, but it doesn't do a lot of damage um, that, that some of the rowdier soccer fans used to blow in, in, in often stadiums years back. And so a lot of people just, the announcers or the commentators said, well, it's probably just one of those. And they went on. It wasn't until later that everybody realized this was, this was, this was something far, far vaster um, than not only than just a, a, a stadium prank but 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 in terms of carnage in terms of terrorist attack it was a whole new new level of, of of slaughter i want to get this right too though bruce when you say everyone mistakes us i mean i was in 9 11 and i mistook what i saw which was the towers um already having been invaded one of them or actually at that point both of them by planes i, I my brain couldn't process it but you're not like other ordinary human beings you kind of super extraordinary in ways and you're very familiar with acts of terrorism. And I kind of wonder, are you always kind of in some of an alert mode or you're aware it takes less to trigger you being keenly aware of the possibility of a terrorist act than, than say someone like me? I, I don't know. I think everybody's different. I think everybody has different reactions. I know, I know that um, my, from what I learned um, in my work and what, what the, the information I was given by um, security intelligence sources, anti, anti-terrorism investigators, uh, the whole the whole lot. You come to look at things a little bit differently. You come to look at the broader picture, um, and I, I, I don't. I, th- I think it, you tended not to. You see the threat as something larger, maybe not something quite as pressing. Not something as maybe you have to keep looking over your shoulder all the time. Although there have been periods, including after those attacks in 2015, where, you know, I was very careful. I'd get on the Metro, I'd see somebody who had left a, a suitcase, you know, next to the door and wasn't taking, uh, paying attention to it. And, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And I'd keep a very close watch to see, is this person going to stay in the Metro? Is he going to get off? He's going to leave the bag, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, you were more aware, but um, the, the one thing though, I, I know um, it's, shocked a few people that I spoke to back in the U.S. after these attacks was they said, well, aren't you, aren't you terrified? Are you going to leave the city? Are you going to move back here? And I said, no, 
that's insane. Why would, why would I do that? And, well, you're only a mile away. You could have died. And I said, well, you know, I, I could die by getting hit by a truck. I could, you know, in a car accident. And there's a lot of ways you could die. Um, it's, 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 you have to put these things in the perspective. And I think that's one of the, the goals of terrorism is to make us all lose our perspectives, not only in the way we see the threat as present to our, ourselves, but indeed uh, in the way we respond to them. And I remember one terror official, um, uh, one of the, my best sources at one point told me, he says, you know, you have to always be careful that your response to terrorism doesn't trample the same rights that the terrorists are trying to take away from you by force. Um, go into more of that, because uh, we've talked about, you know, in preparation for this, about having to balance the concern of doing the terrorist job for them, which is to spread terror, and reporting the news, educating the people so that if we do hear strange sounds, if we do notice uh, images or activities on the street outside the bistros and cafes, we're more heads up. I mean, how do you strike that balance that's so seemingly impossible to, to arrive at? Again, I think it's something that everybody differs at. I mean, it's this is going to sound like a stupid comparison, but it's the kind of, uh, I was going to say the intellectual reaction, but there's a lot of emotion, a lot of psychology in play when, you know, you're talking about terrorism, you're talking about the fear factor, you're talking about being provoked into a reaction that is not your normal reaction and a level of security you normally wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't take and uh, adopt. And I, I think it's just difference per person. I mean, the stupid comparison I was going to make, it's like, side of blood you know some people just oh big deal okay you know let's take care of the guy let's put a bandage on him or her and you know and, and, and move on and other people just freak out they can't deal with it and again i think if that that differs in keeping that in mind i think as, as journalists if you if you're covering terrorism um you, you, again you have to kind of try to keep the big picture yes people have just died yes people are bleeding and they're maimed for life um yes this is a horrible thing and it's, a, and it's and it's traumatized a lot of people and it was attacked on just not one society but really society at large um but you also have to make sure you don't you, you don't um it's already terrorizing enough that you don't have to dramatize it even further. And I think that's been a mistake that a lot of media has. And as a matter of fact, I think there's a big mistake that media has, uh, that mass media has in covering terrorism today. Um, it becomes something that people don't really follow day in and day out the way I was very lucky that I was able to, um, you know, among other things, politics and life in France, what have you, economy. But, you know, time was good about telling me, you know, yeah, you just follow this every day, you, you know, keep working on it because when, when something happens, we want you to be able to respond to that, but also put it into larger perspective. I think now there's no larger perspective. It's just put the cameras on where, you know, the carnage is and get the Vox Pops. This is a longer uh, conversation perhaps, and I don't want to equate uh, nor conflate what has just recently happened here on this side uh, in the United States in a town called Michigan City. Uh, I'm sorry, Oakland City, I think in Michigan. Um, we had a, a young sophomore student who's now being prosecuted as I'm reading it as an adult uh, for taking a gun, his father's, and going down his school halls and just murdering his classmates. Um, and the interesting thing is, uh, as it's coming out in the news, uh, local authorities, as supported by the governor of Michigan, are seeking to charge the boy not just with murder, intentional murder, uh, the state equivalents thereof, uh, but also with terrorism um, for inflicting terror upon his classmates. 
Do you have any thoughts uh, or insights about that? Uh, I've read a little bit about it. I've heard about it. Um, but I, I don't, I don't have any, obviously any firsthand news. I don't have any information. I've did, I don't know anything probably about the less than you do about it. Um, my, my was surprised to hear that terrorism had been added to the list of crimes um, because terrorism has traditionally been a, a very specific kind of political act. It's been a, it's been, it's been maybe an illegitimate political act. And I think we're all, almost all agree it is an illegitimate political act. It's an act of blind, blind violence. And indeed one that is intended to inspire, to target innocent non-combatants and inspire so much fear in that society that it, that it will react, it will succumb to the demands of the attackers. And, and that has always been the political so-called justification for those who subscribe to it of terrorism. This sounds like, uh, I won't say a random act of, 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 of violence, but um, a different, the motivation doesn't seem as politicized as, as it was, as it was, uh, for example, in the Paris attacks in, in 9-11. Um, and, and I think if you're going to start applying these kind of definitions to terrorism, and this, again, this is a bigger story, much open debate. I'm not making any definitive statements here. I'm just saying that if this is an act of terrorism, then you're going to have to go back and in 1999, reclassify Columbine as terrorism. You're going to have to go back into what was it? uh 1989 i think it was or, or 1979 um and classify remember the oh i don't like mondays uh girl in uh san diego who shot off a ball a whole playground full of kids just because she was unhappy it was monday um I, oh you're gonna have to go back and requalify all those it's terrorism i have the feeling we're gonna be in a situation where everything is terrorism nothing is terrorism i i i had to bring it up because it's in the news today and it's such it's just the, the link is terrorism and it's not the same kind of terrorism, but let's not stay here. Let's table this. This, this is, this is a much deeper, longer conversation. Maybe we can come back to it. Um, let's, let's go back in time, Bruce. Terrorism, terrorism. Uh, I want to go back to your origins. Uh, I'm going to put up on screen these images of you when I knew you, uh, going back to when we swam together at USC. Um, talk about terror. <laughs> well, we called it the dungeon. It was called the dungeon for us, right? Our pool, uh, prior to the one, the beautiful one that Fred Utenksu built for us at the Utenksu Aquatic Center. So you go from there and you get invitations to the most exclusive of places, palaces, um, inner sanctums. You have uh, private audiences with world leaders. You cover those who make the news, uh, those who the news is about. You hang with uh, leading public figures. This one being uh, one of the uh, most uh, decorated I guess, uh, strikers, right? Fo uh, right? Football players in Europe. Thierry Henry, he's, he's a uh, 1998 World Cup champion, a 2000 uh, European champion, and he was uh, a great star with uh, my, my favorite uh, Premier League team, Arsenal, who unfortunately just lost to Manchester. United tonight. So. And I and I think uh, knowing you, I think another reason why you respect him, as uh, if I understand it, you know, he's an activist. He's he's done a lot to address uh, uh, racism, discrimination, and the like. Um, and and so, well, let me let me get to this. This sets the frame. You're in Europe, but you came from the U.S. How do you, as an American, or and when you were time, an American-based publication, 
a non-French-born journalist working for a U.S. BMF. How did you get access to those inner corridors of secrecy and power? How do they let you into the palace? Well, I, I think in a lot of ways, I guess you could compare um, some of the competitions I was allowed to swim in while I was at USC with some of the people I was allowed to interview when I was at Time. A lot of it is, 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 is who you're with where you're coming from, who, who's representing you, who's backing you. Um, you know, you come in with Peter Dale and coach Peter Dale and saying, you know, he's on my team and, uh, and we're USC and we're swimming here. So you know, make way for him. That's, it's kind of the same thing as when you call the, the, the Elysee Palace, the presidential palace in France and say, you know, I'd like an interview with a, with a, an advisor. I'd like an interview with the prime minister, something like that. Obviously to get in access to those kind of people um, only happens infrequently. You can get, you know, briefings from their advisors almost on a weekly basis. And, you know, you get to, get to go in the same place as you would if, if you were seeing the president, the prime minister or ministers. But, but it, a lot of it is, is because you have that business card and because when those people speak to you, they know they're speaking to all that enormous audience behind that business card. Um, and that's not to say it's a shoo-in. Um, uh, just to give you a very quick, quick uh, 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 anecdote, we were turned down. I don't know how many times for the interview we wanted to do with the former French president Jacques Chirac, um, who was featured on one of the covers that you flashed. Um, and it was in the walk up to the um, in the Iraq War, and France at that point was taking it on the chin from the U.S. Uh, all these ridiculous things about freedom fries and and, and cheese eating surrender monkeys and what have you, because France opposed the war. And as it turned out, for very good reasons. There were no weapons of max destruction and starting war that would foment chaos in that region was worse than actually having, having a horrible dictator in place. But, but you state that as a fact, there were no weapons of mass destruction and, and we learned that, but that's not what people are going out and maintaining and or arguing or presenting on the floor at the UN. Uh, exactly. And, and it was because, in fact, the French foreign minister, Dominique de Vipin, very forcefully basically said that's that's nonsense and we're not going to follow you, that so many um, American legislators went, 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 went um, a bit crazy and started, you know, this, this anti-French, uh, um, you know, campaign again with the, the freedom fries. I mean, how ridiculous is that freedom fries? I mean, give me a break in coalition of the willing. I mean, who, who, is, who is in the Tonga or something? You know, I, I mean, anyway, um, but the point is, is to get that interview, we, we were turned down a, a lot of times. And, and, and I finally made one last appeal to Jack Chirac's um, uh, uh, press person and, and, and put my best argument out there and, and indeed telling them why giving to us in time would give them a bigger bang for their interview buck. And I, I assumed that it worked because shortly after they said, yeah, come on in, he'll, he'll, he'll see you uh, this weekend. The uh, job, the way you describe it, the way you describe yourself as uh, certainly not immune, but, but purposefully desensitized as opposed to sensitized to, to terrorists and acts of terrorism that we can die from anything any day and that's how you're gonna live your life. You're not gonna allow the terrorists to shape who you are, how you're gonna live. I mean, that's an act of defiance in and of itself. Have, have you ever been placed in a situation where you've personally felt threatened because of your profession? Have you ever been placed in a situation where you thought you wouldn't survive it? No, the, I mean, the, the short answer is no. Um, I, I know that a couple of times when I 
went to New York uh, to meet with editors at time, uh, just kind of touch base. Um, a couple of times we'd have staff lunches and some people would ask, you know, are you ever worried? Do you think they're gonna come after you? And my answer was no, I mean, why would they come after me? I'm, I'm, I'm basically repeating what what people are telling me and, and you know the intelligent sources and, and and that's going to get out there that could get out there um anyway um so I, i'm not any any threat to them and i'm not blowing their cover um um the, the only time i actually felt intimidated was when um uh, my bureau chief and i were called in um to the i believe it was a private residence of a of a very high ranking saudi official in in paris who um had been very much involved with the intelligence services and and apparently the, the kingdom was very unhappy about a book review of all things that time wrote in its it ran in its domestic edition about a book on i believe it was 9 11 and saudi alleged saudi ties to 9 11 and spiriting citizens out of the us in the wake of 9 11 and a lot of other things that were very controversial and and this gentleman um, had us into his home um which was an entire multi-story building um guarded by very large bodyguards and um he had us in and um explained to us in no certain ter terms about just how happy um the saudi leadership was and um impressing on us importance that we convey that happy then that unhappiness to our editors and i presume get something done about it um and we we tried to let him know that that's we're journalists, we don't do that. And we're representatives in Paris. We had nothing to do with that article and our editors are not gonna change their minds anyway because of what we tell them. And um, a rather tense situation, the atmosphere got even tenser after that. And so again, I don't say I was I was in danger of my life, but I will admit that both my very chief and I were, were, were um, impressed if not intimidated enough that we kind of walked out and about a block down the street, just kind of went, whoa. Oh, was that man? That was that was that was pretty hairy, you know. So that that was as close as, as it got. But you know, this happens when geopolitics intersects with you know controversy and 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 something like terrorism and and the national security. You know, things happen. And a later event like the murder and disassembling of the body of Khashoggi inside the uh, embassy that also may inform uh, your past experience and put it through a new prism. That, that, that changed this, added a bit of perspective, let's say, you know, in, in hindsight, and of course, it was a different situation. Mr. Khashoggi was a, 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 a longtime dissident and a very high profile crit uh, critic of the kingdom and, you know, had had made it clear that he was he was on for for, for life he was going to be battling that regime for life and we were just called in to carry the can for you know an editorial choice that we didn't even know about so it, you know the context is different but yeah you're, you're right it that when i read that news it the, that meeting did come back to mind even though again it would be utter hyperbole to 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 suggest that 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 there was any ever any suggestion that we were actually gonna gonna take it on the chin well, Bruce, we have to wrap today's session. I got to wind down, but a lot of what you say strikes me um, through another kind of a lens, and that is seeing you uh, more than worthy of your knighthood. Uh, there's certain bravery and a courageousness uh, that that uh, goes with you in doing your job and and as you report on your own experiences. I, I want to share just a little bit more insight with viewers into who you are, as I know you. I want to share the story of how I did some actual reporting, you know, a, a real journalist like uh, job. 
how I had to persuade you to allow me to even share the facts of your knighthood on this show and obtain the evidence to display it. I'm almost certain you would not have uh, allowed me to bring it up and you would have omitted mentioning it to me, but for the exchange you and I had in uh, Thanksgiving wishes uh, by way of this email on screen. And uh, we don't have time for me to read it aloud right now, but you again, just make light of it and uh, put it in an entirely different context that say someone like I or others who might probably display our medal um, or our honor. Uh, I, would, I would post it on my Facebook and my LinkedIn, be one of the first things, it's non-visible on yours. I wanna share what the real letter looks like and, and the real order, uh, and that's on screen. Um, it certainly doesn't uh, hew to what you wrote me in their casual email. Uh, once you get up on screen is your medal um, and more about the, uh, the order, uh, exclusive membership. Um, I, I wanna share two things with viewers, Bruce. I want you to share your wife's response to news of your knighthood and, and the scheduling of your honoring. And then I also want you to share about uh, the meddling ceremony, how, how, you're, how you're knighted. I'll walk you through this just extremely briefly. First of all, it's, it's, it's a little bit different than in France than it is in, in, in the UK. I mean, people don't actually call you sir. Knight, knighthood is a, is, a, is a rank and there's, I think it's commander and something else above that. Um, I, I, so, so, you know, it's, it's Night. This is not like they, I, nobody. Any, any. I was tapped on the shoulder with a sword or anything like that. What I basically happens is once a ministry or other uh, public uh, entity uh, puts you puts your candidacy up, the order either accepts you, or it doesn't. If it does, it basically says, um, "Look, we've viewed your your candidacy. You seem to be a legitimate choice. Um, you're welcome to join us. Um, get somebody who's already a member to." anoint you and you take care of how you do that. And so therefore, exactly how you do that is up to you. I know people who had huge receptions. I know people who had small ones, et cetera, et cetera. And basically I was agonizing on what, uh, what to do. I, I wasn't even sure at first I was gonna accept it because I, I, frankly, I think some of these kind of things, especially anything that, that, that smacks of aristocracy or that kind of thing at all. I just, it's just, it, it kind of chills me. I, I, I don't, I, I don't take it very seriously. And in case of aristocracy, actual aristocracy, I actually, actually, you know, disdain it. But um, after a while, I thought, you know, I was very proud when France allowed me to become a citizen and I was appreciative and still am. And I thought, well, you know, if it's extending me this honor, I'd be kind of a hypocrite to then, you know, wave it away. At the same time, I didn't want to do any big uh, reception. So I kind of said, what do I do with my wife? And she said, well, I, you know, I don't care, but I'm telling you, you know, I know how you feel about this. And I feel the same way. You do something, make sure it's not on a weekday because I'm going to be, I'm going to be working. So I'm going to be there and don't do it on the weekend because, you know, I have, you know, spinning class and then I do, you know, weightlifting and stuff. So that's going to be pretty tight too. But, you know, otherwise it's up to you. And I thought, you're right. I'm just going to get somebody who's i know who's in this order and who's uh, very much uh, one of people i most respect on earth he's one of my best terrorism sources as a matter of fact he was the senior anti-terrorism uh, investigator and we went he agreed to do it we went to a cafe uh, had lunch that we always do discuss terrorism as we always do and when the coffee came he said oh gee we got we got to do this fast because we're both got to go to work now and so he read the letter gave me the two kisses on the cheek put the medal on and we went on our separate ways and you think that's compliance with the order and the rights of passage. You do well, things in your own unique way. I could have grabbed a few packs of sugar and tossed them up for confetti, you know, but I just, that would have been kind of, you know, an oh, excessive show of vanity.
Bruce, we have to wrap. Um, viewers, I knew this was going to be a challenge. The volume of works Bruce has created, the volume of intelligence and talent with words and his, his sharp eye and, and brilliant mind, his unique take on the world. We're going to continue this conversation with Bruce. We will be following up this episode with another one featuring Bruce as my next guest. Uh, I can think of no better way or person I want to wrap this year up. Um, our next episode will be my last one uh, for 2021. Uh, and I'll be back with Bruce. So Bruce, I'm going to call you that. I thank <laughs> yeah. you, my friend. Yeah, I know you, I know you would. It's, it's, I've been called worse, and including by you. So I thank you, that. my friend. I thank you, my hero. We haven't done this yet. So as we sign off, I'm going to raise a glass to you. I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but it's a little bit early in the day here. It's late at night there. Thank you for staying up. But I raise my glass to you and I cheer you. Um, mahalo for joining me today, my friend. It's been my pleasure and thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think technically you can get in trouble for drinking alcohol on, on, uh, on, on live television, but I'm, I'm out of that business. I'm not going to I'm not going to check that out. Oh, Coca-Cola. Viewers, <laughs> my friend and I, Bruce, we thank you. Until thank next you, time. Thank uh, you, ho. From my home to yours, from me and my family to you and yours. Mahalo and aloha. <laughs>